Welcome to the Business of Impact, a podcast brought to you by the Business for Impact Center at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. Our mission is to unleash the power of business to help people and the planet thrive, to solve the complex social and environmental challenges facing the world today. We need all sectors involved, business, government, and civil society. It's all about people, planet, profit, the triple bottom line, and we are committed to leading the way. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to better understand and get involved in social impact and making a difference. Please hit the subscribe button and join us for each episode to get to know our staff, student leaders, partners, and guests for meaningful conversations about our work and about social impact. Welcome to The Business of Impact. I'm Leslie Crutchfield, Executive Director of Business for Impact here at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. On today's episode, I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Dana Suskind, who's a professor of surgery and pediatrics at the University of Chicago, where she also directs the Pediatric Hearing Loss and Cochlear Implant Program, and serves as co-director of the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health at the University of Chicago. Hello, Dana, and welcome. How are you doing today? I'm great, really excited to be here. Thank you so much. Our, Our founder at Business for Impact, Bill Novelli, came to me and said, I met the most extraordinary person named Dana Suskin, and we had to get you on an episode of our podcast, and we're so delighted. He talked about how you believe America has to do so much better in supporting parents and grandparents so that they can grow and nurture into healthy children. And for our listeners who don't know all of Bill's background, he led AARP for many, many years and believes in the importance of cross-generational action for change. Let's start right there. What, What are some of the ways that you think America can help do better at growing and nurturing healthy children? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction. When I met Bill, it was really with his history of leading the AARP and the incredible work that he did there. And then it really opened up my eyes to all the things that he's done and that you all have done. Uh, So super excited to be here. And it really is an easy segue into your question. I believe that our country can do better in many ways for supporting children and families. And towards that end, it's really about elevating our expectations for what society can and should do to nurture the next generation and support parents and caregivers in that role. And parents and caregivers include grandparents, aunts, uncles, all of us who are really devoted to um, growing the next generation. So the work that that. Bill did, that you've done, um, related to helping unify the voices of so many to to support all of us, uh, I think is a really powerful first step in what we need to do. Great. Thank you for that. Well, let's, let's dive a little bit further into your career. And you've had huge and wide-ranging and highly impactful career in early brain development and crossing into public health. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to uh, the teaching and leadership positions that you are today. 
Yeah. Well, if you had asked me 20 years ago, what would you be doing? Um, never in a million years would I have imagined my career having taken this path. I mean, the truth is I'm a physician. I'm a pediatric cochlear implant surgeon who became a doctor because I wanted to impact, you know, children's lives one child at a time. And the truth is, is that the work that I do today, I think of as really a continuation of my work as a physician, really removing barriers in the way of all children so that they can thrive. And, you know, when that's your North Star, allowing all children to thrive, um, it really takes you on crazy, crazy journeys that I can, I'm happy to share with, but that's, that's the long and short of it. And what particularly about early brain development and public health yeah. attracted you. Sure, sure, sure. Shall I tell the story of, you know, leaving the operating room into the world of social sciences as a way into sort of explaining it? So as many of your listeners know, um, I'm a pediatrician. Pediatric, a cochlear implant is an amazing piece of technology that allows a child born deaf the ability to hear, to talk, and really mainstream educationally and socially. Uh, I started the pediatric implant program here at the University of Chicago with great hopes to be able to give all children the ability to, you know, embrace this new technology and really reach their potentials. But the truth is, pretty early on in my career, after implanting amazing kids with all the potential in the world and parents who love them dearly, I started seeing huge differences in outcomes, differences in outcomes where some would be thriving and learning on peer with their hearing peers and others same time out. Uh, barely being able to communicate. And it was that sort of experience of seeing these disparities that really pushed me not only to try to understand why this was, but more importantly, what I could do about it. And it took me onto this journey that really demonstrated to me the importance of those first three years of life and talking and nurturing interaction between parents and caregivers as the catalyst for healthy brain development. And it was that as the first step that really pushed me into this world of public health and social sciences as a way to allow children to thrive. Great. Can you talk more about some of those differences and maybe you know, what might have led you to start new organizations and new initiatives to try and address that? Sure, absolutely. So pretty early in trying to understand why I saw these differences in my children with hearing loss, I came about these studies that showed the impact of language in basically allowing children's brains develop. Initially, I had seen differences in my own patient populations and thought, okay, this has something to do with their hearing loss. But the truth is, is that in all children, rich nurturing talk and interaction are what build a child's brain. And so the differences I was seeing in my patients had less to do with their hearing loss than the worlds in which they were born. The talk that you know, those born into homes with less talk and interaction had slower development. And that's really what I was seeing. And this mirrors really what goes on in the larger population that we often talk about as the beginnings of the opportunity gap between often rich and poor children. And so my first step was like, okay, here's this powerful science showing the power of parent and caregiver talk to build a child's brain. You know, 
Everyone needs to understand it. All parents love their children, but not all parents have been given access to this powerful science. So one of the first things that I did in the research program that I co-direct is we started developing programs, evidence-based programs, to put this powerful science in the hands of all parents who love their children. That nurturing, talk, and interaction, what we call the three T's, tune in, talk more, take turns, are the key for building a child's brain. And I thought, okay, this is a first and important step, both in the populations that I work with as a doctor, with families with children with hearing loss, but all families. So we started doing these amazing, you know, developing these programs, doing these studies, showing that in fact, yes, the science is really clear that talk and interaction in those first three to five years of life are critical, that parents and caregivers are the brain architects of children and things were going. I wrote a book called 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brain, which I thought, okay, I'm going to share this powerful science that helped, you know, inspire a surgeon to leave the operating room, although I still operate. And I wanted everybody to understand this powerful science. But honestly, the more and more I learned, the science is still absolutely true. But you started, I started working with these incredible families across the south side of Chicago, across this country. And the parents like were enthusiastic. They really, you know, embraced this idea of, you know, being their children's first and most important architect. But then I started seeing barrier after barrier after barrier being put in front of parents so that it was almost impossible to put the science into action, which is really sort of the next step, the second book, the work that I'm doing now that, that got me to talking to you. So I'm not sure if that was too much or too little. No, Tell it's me. great. We're going to talk about uh, your newest book, Parent Nation, in a second. But let's, there's so much to unpack here in terms of the journey that you've been on and what you were learning. And first of all, I'm just responding um, as a parent, right? I remember I have three kids that are growing now, but at, in infancy and in their early years, being exposed through our pediatrician and just from reading of how important it is to, what are the three T's? Tune in, talk. Talk and, more. And talk more. And, and take turns, and, yeah. And take turns, you know, you do some of that instinctively, but I remember being encouraged, just talk to your child, tell them what you're doing, narrate, you're constantly giving these verbal cues and interacting with them and letting them see your face and uh, looking them in the eyes. And you, you don't think such, a, you don't imagine that such a simple seeming action is having such powerful physiological and neurological impact on this developing brain, uh, you know, and I'm learning so much just from talking to you about it right now. And, and I can understand that if, if a parent isn't made aware of how important it is to do that, we don't, we either don't talk to infants or we do baby talk and, you know, they're not getting that advanced stimulation. The other thing that I think is really important about what you're saying is, and, and really just you uniquely have this position as a, as a surgeon, when we talk about social change, and, and my research is all about social movements and how change happens, there's some, you, you have to think about the nature of problems. Some problems are simple and there's an easy fix, right? If you have hearing loss and you can fix it with a cochlear implant, there's a surgical procedure and it solves the problems. Other problems are not simple. We call them complex and they need adaptive solutions that aren't immediately obvious. There's not a silver bullet, right? That can 
um, and certainly behavior change and awareness building and systems change fall in that category. And what you're sharing with us is that what you were observing from all these parents that were having different levels of progress with the, with the children is that the environment that the infant is developing in is you know, as important as being able to have access to a, a new surgical device. And without that environmental impact, you're just not gonna get the same impact, right? So, and it sounds like what you experienced, which is what so many, what we call social entrepreneurs have is, you know, as a surgeon, you could have, you know, so much impact to doing how many surgeries can you do in a year? Yeah. Um, probably you could do a lot. You've seen like no. a lot but you could impact so many more lives, any parent, right, with the knowledge of these three T's. So, so, so here you are, and now you're on a mission to try and change the way we parent and, and really impact the whole population. Let's talk more about your book, Parent Nation. Congratulations. Uh, I, I know as an author of three books, these do not happen by chance. It is a labor of love and uh, a lot of hard labor. Uh, tell, tell us more about your book and, and more importantly, what's the big idea? What are you trying to get across to the readers? Yeah, no, first of all, all that you just said is right on. Um, and in some ways, I think because I'm a cochlear implant surgeon and you put in this, you know, cochlear implant device and you say, ah, this is going to change everything. It really makes clear that that's not enough, right? Um, that even the most, there are no silver bullets in this world. Uh, we wish there were. I think most problems are complex, but can be taken care of if we just have the will. With that being said, you know, this next book, I'll, I'll, I'll just, forgive me, I'll correct one thing. This is not about changing parenting. It's changing our expectations that we have as parents, we have been convinced that parenting is a go it alone experience that, you know, that requires no support, right? And if COVID-19 has not taught us one, one thing, it's the fact that none of us parent alone. Um, I can tell you that personally, and I'm sure that you can share that as well. And that society can and should play a role in supporting parents. It's not taking away their role as parents, let's be clear. Parenting and how we parent is sacrosanct. And, you know, parents know best how they want to raise their children. But this, you know, we talk about parental choice, um, but part of the argument is that we have no choices in this country. We've made it so, and I spoke, spent hundreds and hundreds of hours talking to parents that no matter your political affiliation, religious affiliation, views on how you want to raise your children, no one really actually has choices. And in some ways, this next book, Parent Nation, is really tearing down those unrealistic ex expectations and really saying, you know what? We need to align our values as a nation that we truly put children and families and the next generation at the center and providing the support. And this is not just policy, but businesses, healthcare, we all play a role in raising the next generation and supporting parents and caregivers, including grandparents in doing this. So, so let, let me ask you a question, drilling down on this idea that we're, you know, for every parent out there, we don't have a lot of choices in reality. Unpack that a little more. What, what do you mean when you say yeah. that? Yeah. And remember, much of my focus is on the first 
three to five years of life, when 80 to 85% of the physical brain is grown, where we really set the foundation for all future thinking and learning, et cetera. And at this incredibly powerful period of point in time of a child's development is exactly when we leave parents and caregivers high and dry. We leave them absolutely alone. You think about the education of the child, you think of K-12. Well, the, the scientific fact is that learning doesn't start on the first day of school. It starts on the first day of life. But yet we leave children's quote-unquote first and most important teachers, whether it be parents, grandparents, or early child care providers on their own when it's the only people who are being affected is not only the child, but the future of our country. So yeah, that is really the basis of the book that parental choice, whether, you know, and I talk about, I give stories of, you know, there are two family stories that I think really emulate this lack of choice, actually all of them within the book. But, you know, we I spoke to a woman star who, you know, is deeply religious, um, who always felt like the, you know, place for a mother is at home raising her, her children, which is absolutely what she always dreamed of doing. But because of the lack of health insurance and a living wage for her husband who was learning to be a teacher, she had to go back to work almost immediately, just as one in four mothers have to go back to work within, you know, two weeks of giving birth, she was, you know, she didn't get a choice to be the stay-at-home mom that she always dreamed that her mother and grandmother had been. In that same way, I tell another story of amazing woman, Talia, a brilliant research scientist who was doing a postdoctoral fellowship here at the University of Chicago, you know, trained at Stanford and, and the like. And actually had to leave the workforce because as she said in her own words, I felt like I was failing in all parts of my life. I, she couldn't afford childcare. It was eating up more than she was making as a postdoctoral fellow. And she had to make a choice giving, you know, there is no choice in truth. And so they're sort of these star and Talia who wanted very different things for raising their children ultimately didn't have a choice. And ironically, you know, had to had to give up their dreams for parenting the way they wanted. I hear what you're saying. That it's, they were forced to make a choice they did not want. Yeah. Um, and, and, and is that a and, choice? It's not and, a choice. Yeah. A cho you know, yeah. your, it's, it's your circumstance and your financial situation, whether you've got a partner, you know, in this. Um, and I definitely hear what you're saying about those zero to three years being isolated, lonely. You, you know, you're, you are if you've got a great pediatrician that can guide you through some of those early years, but you know, I remember with my firstborn coming home and being home three days from the hospital and thinking that I was feeding her and nursing her. And, you know, it turns out it wasn't working and she dropped like two pounds and we had to go in and, you know, get her fed in a different way. I had no idea what I was doing. And luckily, you know, I, I, I went into the pediatrician's office first thing Monday morning, and, and we, we fix the problem. This is, what you are describing is, number one, a universal thing. I mean, we seem to think because it, deep in our DNA, we love and want to protect our children, that we understand the science of it. The truth is, is that we, you know, we, 
that it's that's not embedded. And actually, in you know, I talk a lot about the importance of leveraging the healthcare system to support families. And I talk about a program um, called Family Connects that you know provides a home visit for all families. It's a really you know a relatively inexpensive home visiting model, but it you know that understands that we aren't you know. Having a child makes us a parent, but it doesn't mean that we know everything that comes around it. And that having a nation that is truly a parent nation understands that and supports families in exactly that. Instead of making parents feel guilty that, oh my gosh, I don't know this, I'm failing. No, 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 no. This is this is stuff that you can be supported through. Yes, yes. I have a friend who always quipped that you know, parenting is the one job that you get no training for, <laughs> you know, no support for, and you don't need a license. You know, it's totally unregulated. And she felt completely unequipped. And this is somebody who had, a, you know, lots of educational background and, and, and read a lot of books, so kind of taught herself. But it is interesting. Okay. All right. So let's talk more about the, this, the ideas that you're espousing in Parent Nation. I want to talk about how you build a movement around this and, and more support from a policy perspective, and also what could the role of different institutions like businesses be. Mm -hmm. um, but first, talk, talk, talk in general about what, what's the change that you like to see and what, how can we accomplish that? Yeah. So, you know, you, in writing a book, you learn a lot. And one of the things that blew me away is just how much of an outlier we are in this country in terms of supporting children and families. And I'm not even talking about, look, we don't have to be the, you know, Norway and Finland. I mean, but even amongst all of them, we are at the very bottom of investing in parents and caregivers and children at the very bottom. And you think, well, how did we get to this very point? And, you know, what is so clear is that this sort of this myth of American individualism has seeped into this idea of parenting that, you know, you've got to be rugged and independent and therefore in parenting expect zero support. And I think one of the big hopes before the larger hope is that we start to elevate our expectations and understanding that, you know, societal support from whether it be businesses, healthcare, or, you know, policymakers is, is critical that we all play a role in building the next generation. But what do, you know, beyond us stopping blaming ourselves and beginning to see that we need to come together, it really, it reminded me of trying to figure out, well, what is the way forward? And actually, the greatest, th the greatest learnings I had was the great hope that large sweeping societal shifts can happen. I mean, at this moment in time, it doesn't feel like it. Um, but you just have to go back 50, 60, 70 years ago, when another segment of the population was equally marginalized, equally poor. I mean, at this moment in time, children, uh, especially young children are the poorest of society. Back then, it was individuals, elderly individuals over 65. And through the power of bringing voices together through the gray lobby and importantly, the AARP, we have seen a huge shift in a population that was previously voiceless. I mean, the grandparents, the elderly, I mean, 
justifiably receive the support and the due that they have for all that they've done for our country. And I take that model of how the AARP has been able to really shift what it looks like to be old in this country and and deserve and receive the respect that you should get and support. In that same way, I think parents uh, in the early years deserve parent children and therefore their parents deserve that type of respect. But it's only going to happen when we've started to build this idea of a collective identity rather than looking at other parents. I think today we look at other parents and we don't see parents, but we see other identifiers. But instead, if we could find a way to see the identifier of parent, the identifier of someone who who has had sleepless nights and equally love our children and only want the best for them, if we come together in that way and start building a country that finally aligns its stated values with what it really does. And so, you know, what is my big hope that, you know, I'm not sure what it looks like, but something like the AARP for parents that understands that this is a very deserved group of individuals who do, you know, one of the keys for AARP is to serve, not be served. And I think if we start to look at parents in that same way, they are they're the guardians of our future by, by uh, raising the next generation that we could come to that point. That was a long way to, t- that was long-winded, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I hear what you're saying that it, it, the story of AARP is remarkable, right? You had um, Ethel Andrus, I think was the founder yes. and she was a retired teacher and she went to go check on one of her friends and we, she found her living basically in, in a chicken coop in a yeah. very deteriorating circumstance and, and had this idea of getting health insurance and retirement benefits for teachers that had been really left behind so, you know, once they were done teaching. And then that, you know, fast forward 50 years later and beyond millions of members representing all people and their interests over 50 in this country. And this did not happen by chance, right? By c- creating a membership organization representing the interest of millions, the, you know, the membership of AARP reflects America. It's blue and red and purple, you know, it's black, white, BIPOC, all kinds of uh, different identities within the AARP population. But what AARP does is advocate with a united voice. And because there is so much grassroots energy and power uh, behind the AARP, when the AARP takes a position on a policy, Congress, elected officials need to listen. And, and frankly, politics is a, a harsh world. If they don't, they can get voted out. The AARP has enough uh, boots on the ground to, to move policies. And that's what's going to really be required to, if, if you really want to build this movement advocating uh, through parents on behalf of children. You need all those hundreds of millions of parents advocating for what's in the best interest of all children, not just their own children. And that is, as Jim Collins, one of my favorite business management authors would say, that is a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, And to achieve this, it's going to require nothing less. So how can um, listeners get involved? What, how do we get a hold of the book and where can we learn more? 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for those words. I want to emphasize, again, as you mentioned, the ARP reflects everyone. I mean, it's, it's one-third Dem, one-third Republican, one-third Independent. It is a cross-section that understands that we all do better together. Um, and so where where can... so. The book is uh, uh, usual places uh, on Amazon and all the books a million. Um, I want to say that if it makes you feel better, uh, all the proceeds come back to this larger idea that we need to support all children and families in this country. Parentnation.org is the website. Reach out to me. I would love nothing more than those in the private sector to rally behind this idea that we are all parents and that supporting parents and caregivers makes for a better nation today and for the future. Well, that's great. All right. Well, I'm certainly going to check it out and get involved. I encourage everybody listening to do the same. Let me just say thank you so much, Dr. Suskin, for joining us. And is there anything we haven't talked about? that you would like our listeners to know? No, I just, I, I think really the role of business and the private sector can help push things along. This is the ultimate in investments. We know that for every dollar invested in early childhood, you get seven to $12 return on investment. Um, but importantly, this impacts gender equity. It gets more women into, back into the workforce. It's foundational for civil rights and giving all children the opportunity to reach their potential. And it is what we stand for as a country. We are about our families. That is what makes us strong. So I believe that the private sector can lead the, the way in this, uh, in this movement. Certainly lead the way and um, take care of our future workforce too. Yeah, they'll right? get a stronger future future workforce. Yes, that's absolutely critical. So, so Great. thank you so much. Well, absolutely. This has just been a fascinating conversation and, you know, talk about our mission at Business for Impact is to help the private sector unleash its power to help people on the planet thrive. And you've given us some really uh, juicy food for thought on yeah. how business can unleash that power for good. Yeah. I, and I'm excited for people to read this book. I mean, there's a whole chapter. The role of business is throughout, um, but there's a whole chapter devoted to the role of business. Um, and so excited to hear what people think. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Business of Impact, brought to you by the Business for Impact Center at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review letting us know what you think. You can also share your ideas for a future episode topic with us at businessforimpact at georgetown.edu. Stay tuned for new episodes throughout the year. You can also subscribe to the Business of Impact on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all of your favorite podcast listening apps, so you'll never miss out. Or listen via the website at businessforimpact.georgetown.edu. Thanks for tuning in.